Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 160, I think it's 160. Wow. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, episode 160, man. We're just... uh bulldozing along here man these uh, episodes seem like they just keep coming by faster yep. and faster yep 160 and we have a five-star review i believe we haven't read yet let's see here yeah it yep. should be um okay so this is from kcm's 41 most enjoyable waste of an hour you can have stephanie intern 2024 um i think that's a that's a pretty accurate description of this podcast so thank you for that we we do we do appreciate that you understand it is a waste of your hour. Um, and so thank you for that. Um, that being said, we're at 276 five-star reviews. I'm looking to get to 300. Um, that is our We Are Sparta moment. So 1744, Josh, that is the year we're looking at this year, at this week. In 1744, did you know that France and Persia signed a peace treaty on June 6th? I did not know that. Were they fighting on June 7th? I, that, I mean, that, listen, that's all you're getting for you have to go do. You have to go listen. If you want more, you got to pay for it. Okay. That's the goods. That's all you're getting right there. Okay. That's the goods. And I also should submit this, Josh. I got this this weekend. Um, and I haven't even told you or Nate about this. So you, you guys will appreciate this more than, more than most. Um, I got this email from someone and let's see here. It says, I can pull it up. It says, um, Okay. You occasionally do say some really smart, smart stuff that impresses me. I think it's brilliant and innovative. That, that was talking about me. And um, that was from Stephanie, the intern. So there you go. We have Stephanie, the intern, acknowledging my greatness. Um, so it's good to see that she's catching on. Stephanie took you a little while, but she's coming around. So there it is. Yeah, well, we have it there, folks. Uh, Stephanie is uh, not being impersonated by me. That is living proof, <laughs> definitive. <laughs> that ends the discussion right there. That ends it. Because I would never say such nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got uh, we got two articles, two uh, Forbes articles that I wanted to kick things off with. The first one is an interesting article by Deborah Byers, The Last Oil and Gas Cycle, Building the Future on Lessons from the Past. Um, what is your take on the article, Rhina? She's talking about oil and gas, the cycle that we're in, and the trend of oil and gas. She sees us in a dire situation right now, and she yeah. thinks that this, you know, uh, so what's your take? Yeah, so I think, and we've got a piece from uh, Blackman here in a second that I've kind of talked about some of this as well. I think we talk about oil and gas. You have to be careful about, and me and you are guilty of this, and everyone is, about being a prisoner of the moment. So if you remember back um, in, in March, there were people in, before March, like, hey, you don't get a job in oil and gas. Those jobs are going away, da, da, da. Okay, well, on some level, I'm sure some of the jobs will go away that would change new technology, different emphasis or whatever. Okay. However, there, um, and what got me on this is someone tagged me on uh, LinkedIn and asked my opinions. And so I just ran a couple quick numbers. Okay. So the U.S. is the biggest consumer of oil and gas. Our population is 330 million, give or take. Africa, India, China, and South America have a collective population of 4.2 billion people. Let that sink in. 330 million in the U.S. is the largest consumer of oil and gas. 4.2 billion. And most of those people are in sub-first world status. The vast majority of those are, right? Yep. Now, I don't know how many more 4.2 billion is than 330 million, but it's a lot. So if you, yeah, so if you were to say today, you snapped your finger and you brought those 4.2 billion people to live at the same level that most Americans live at, what would happen to the demand for oil? It would go, we can't even, we can't even fathom that, right? I mean, well, I mean, I guess you could model it out based upon the, the U.S. consumption. It would be astronomical, okay? No. So, to, so when you start thinking about the long-term oil and gas um, you know, what's it going to do long-term? You have to start thinking about things like that and say, well, there's 4.2 billion people. Now, that's, that's not everyone. There's what, seven, eight billion people in the population on the planet. So there's other people that are 
you know, there's other countries that I've, I didn't put Pakistan and you know, there's other places I, let, I left out. Um, but as those people become closer and closer to first world and they will, unless you just think we're going to have a long-term period of poverty, uh, but global poverty, if you look at the statistics is going down tremendously over the last hundred years, especially. Um, so if you, if you run that out for another hundred years, you would expect that to, you know, that trend to continue and actually pick up. What does that mean, Josh? More roads are going to be built, more houses, more hospitals, all this stuff. That stuff requires oil and gas at a bare minimum just to run the machines, unless we're going to invent EV bulldozers and all this stuff. But then the materials that you use, that stuff requires oil and gas. Okay, so you start looking at the functionality for oil and gas. It is possible, I don't think it's likely, but it is possible that by 2040, we're all driving EVs. Okay, but that doesn't mean that these 4.2 billion people will not need oil and gas, but for different things. So we might have, we, we will, I'll say this, we will need a more diverse energy platform. Um, we're going to have to bring back nuclear. You know, there, there's things that we're going to have to do as you bring these 4.2 billion people um, into first world status. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's less demand for oil and gas. It, means, it might mean that there's different demand or part of the demand now, um, let's just say for plastics or whatever, um, you know, goes up because you have more people needing plastics. And so these conversations, it sucks right now. It's bad right now. But I have a hard time seeing a future in our lifetime even, um, and even our kids' lifetime, where oil and gas is not a major player on the global scene. It might look different than it does, you know, for our kids by the time they're our age or whatever, then you know, that's only 20 years. I mean, I can't imagine 20 years uh, that's going to look that much different than it does today, but it might, it might start to shift, right? You might have more EVs or, you know, electric scooters or whatever going around. Um, but you know, 20 years from now, I don't, I don't think we're going to be sitting around going, oh, man. Daddy used to, uh, grandpa used to work in oil and gas, dad, you know, and oil and gas, what's that, right? That's not happening. So, yeah, what it looks like, I, I don't, go ahead, yeah. Well, there's just, there's, there's too many uses with oil and gas right now. And I think there's also, um, if you think about the distribution of labor, you don't go from $2 an hour to $100 an hour. You you have a, you have a grade, uh, a sliding scale. And so, it seems that you have countries like, say, United States, we use X amount of oil and gas we're actually transitioning more toward, uh, toward green energy. So there is this, there is this transition that's happening. Uh, but from, from the, from what I understand, usually that transition is costing more than it's saving. So it's, it's actually an investment and technology at this time. These, these third world countries aren't going to go green. They're going to go oil first. And as they grow and as they get, uh, you know, more, more advanced, they're going to start tinkering with some of this green energy. Not to say that they won't have wind turbines and stuff, but that's not going to that's not going to power um, a, a serious uh, city, you know, with hospitals and right. Well, I think we have that. to get yeah. I think until we get to a point to where nuclear is uh, back to being a predominant player on the global big city scale, then you know we're kind of just. I don't say talking outside of our mouth, but we're, you know, we got even then though, you're not going to go hit up a bunch of nuclear plants all, all over Africa. It's just going to, no, 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 be- right. But so like, but I'm saying but just from the U S standpoint, and so you start, you know, um, not having a, as many natural gas peaking plants and stuff like this, but even then you still have to build the roads, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you said that we have, we're going to power everything with wind turbines, well, okay, let's just kind of work that process back the amount of wind turbines it would take to power Africa or wherever, um, or solar panels, well, you have to excavate, you have to dig those, you know, so you have, you have a, you have a, if you wanted to do this tomorrow, if you wanted to power Africa with renewables tomorrow, the amount of diesel fuel alone it would take and the amount of bulldozers that would have to be built and all. So you start working the roads, right? You start working this out. This is not, you don't just wake up and boom, there's a windmill. There's all these things. And so my, my, my point is simply is that even if the, the primary usages for oil today um, start to shift. There's other things that that will have to will pick up that slack, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the that's the issue. And so you know, um, how do you get from an economy like um, I don't know, Kenya, we'll say, to our economy, and how much oil and gas does it take just to transition them? Even if they go 100% renewable power, they still got to build roads. They still got to build. Um, you know, telecommunication, they still got to build hospitals. They got, there's all this stuff they got to build. And that's just one country, one small country. There's 4.2 billion people that have to be brought, at least that have to be brought to first world status. 
So if you think that's going to happen, I don't see how long term you're um, you're negative on or, or pessimistic on on what's going to happen. Oh, I do think it's going to be more diverse. I think it has to be more diverse, and that's a good thing. But I don't think it means it goes away. I just think it means it's, it's just different. Yeah. Now I, I think, like you mentioned, the three hundred thirty million using over fifty percent, four point two billion. Uh, they have a lot of they have a lot of uses, and I think uh, I think first world countries are going to tend to be more diverse that are already there. Third world countries are, are going to rely more on gas and oil, um, coal even, uh, to begin things and you know, kick things off. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about the situation of the industry. Uh, Blackman, one of our regular guests of the show, he wrote an article, the oil and gas situation, the EMP sector faces a reckoning. So he sees the situation as, uh, there's, there's some, difficult um there's some difficulties ahead for emp companies and if we just look back at where we were at say a year ago i was going to some some of the meetings um general uh spe meetings and uh there was we had folks there talking about uh, these private equity folks that were uh, investing in smaller EMP companies, they're having a hard time cash flowing. Uh, there were the projections just weren't hitting the numbers that they were expecting. And Blackman is here talking about uh, Wall Street in general having a bad attitude or a bad taste in their mouth with their recent dealings with the oil and gas industry. And this is not something that's COVID. This this predates the coronavirus by you know a few years. This has been going on for a while. And, uh, and this has just really brought it to a head. So he's talking about a reckoning that, that is coming with EMP companies because of their dismal returns over the last few years. A lot of money is being invested. That money uh, is not being returned at the rate that these investors expected. And now you have the coronavirus just walloping uh, a lot of these companies. So that's going to be interesting, Ron, is, is going to be how the industry as a whole, especially in the U.S. and Texas, responds to this and how it looks because that that's something that i'm really unsure of is how how the industry is going to look here in about six months yeah so um i think so let's say we talk about kind of the big picture now we're kind of in the near term right Mm -hmm. so in the near term i do think there is obstacles but i'm also not entirely convinced that the banks are um as resolved to stay out of oil and gas as, as they, they like to, they want to make it sound right now. I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that, that that will be the case. It might be, but if, listen, you know, if you go look at, um, who was the guy a few months back, we work right. And that whole yeah. deal. I fell apart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you go read any of the, the stuff about what was going on, the banks were clearly, um, clearly aware that there was plenty of questions to be asked, but what was happening was, they was out partying with the WeWork CEO. They was out doing all this stuff. You know, there was a lot of things going on. Um, what's, what's the saying? Go pop bottles and kiss the models. You know, they were doing a lot of yeah. that. They weren't crunching numbers. There weren't much of nerds in there crunching numbers like they should have been. Um, so the other thing is that the when the Fed decides to turn on the print money machine, the people who get the money first are the banks, right? The Wall Street banks. They're the ones who get all this money. So... Now I'm not going to get into the maybe the, the strings that are are not attached to that. But anyways, the banks are being funded by the Fed. Um, they're going to have money to, to lend out, and I'm not entirely convinced that, um, especially with, if a Trump re-election happens, that you won't see the banks looking to um, reinvest in oil and gas. With that being said, it is going to be price dependent. So if price stays, I don't what's that this morning? I even looked. Um, I Thirty-eight when I checked. Yeah. Okay. It's 39 right now. So 38, $39. So if price stays at 38, 39 for the next 24 months, uh, yeah, you're probably gonna see a lot less investment in oil and gas. Yeah. That's a no brainer, right? Mm-hmm. If oil goes to a hundred, I, I got a feeling these, these articles are going to change also. And, and David is very well, well aware of this. Um, how wall street came in and invested into the shell companies was expand your drilling program, expand your drill program. We need to really go drill, 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 drill. And then it shifted to, okay, well, we need returns. And during that process, um, you know, we've had the COVID pandemic and you know, low prices and all that stuff. So 
I know there's a lot of people who think the shell companies won't be able to make it, and that's that's quite possible. One of the things we talked about on here before is shell companies having a diverse portfolio where they're 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 not just drilling; they're also doing midstream. Maybe they get into refining or partner with their refiner or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I do think it is something that the industry has to deal with. But if you can figure out a way to deal with it, figure out a way to give money to its investors, um, then yeah, I think they'd be in a good position. It's just going to depend on you know who who handles this the best way. And, and the final thing I say is we've used this analogy for years and years and years, and we'll keep using it. If you go to school and you make some bad decisions and you get some bad grades, it takes a long time to get your, get your, uh, get your GPA back up. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well, right now um, with the low prices, you know, you got mono for three months. <laughs> you know, your GPA was probably not passing as it was. And then you got mono and you're sick and you're not sure when you can come back and you're weak and, and all this stuff. So it, it, it's definitely, a lot of um, negativity to look at it. Um, but I don't think it means it's the end of the world. And if, if shell production were to stop, if shell production were to stop a hundred percent in the U S well, the price of oil would go through the roof. Right. Mm. So eventually people would start drilling again. Now would those companies be able to, to drill more responsibly and stuff like that? You know, that's a different discussion. So, I, I, I appreciate David Saving. I think he's right. And I think for the EMP companies out there, the shell producers out there, figuring out a way to make sure that you are being as efficient as possible to de-incentivize um, kind of the mentality of the oil field culture, which is, um, you know, um, popping bottles and kissing bottles, right? Same thing. <laughs> let's go out here and uh, let's go out here and get her done. Uh, whatever it costs, try to be more responsible. I think that's, that's a hard transition, but it's one that has to be made. And, uh, and, and I think the industry will do it eventually. The best thing probably for the industry would be lower for longer prices for the next 12 to 14 months to kind of figure out how to reshuffle this thing, refocus it, let the bad companies, I say bad companies, let the companies that are going to go bankrupt, go bankrupt. Um, and then, you know, as prices go back up, then you start to kind of to balance it out. However, if you, if you get a sudden surge in price, you know, $60, I think it's JP Morgan Chase said uh, in July, if you get a $60 price for the rest of the year, you can't, you might have a setback where instead of having to kind of go through and make those tough choices, you're kind of given a, a, you know, a lifeline, if you will. Well, you know, there's uh, there's uh, we talked a little bit about the OPEC meeting that happened uh, recently. There's a little bit more information that came out, um, but they were saying the OPEC meeting, they fell short of their 9.7 million barrel a day cuts by 1.26 million. So uh, they actually got an agreement uh, with Baghdad that they're going to cut 57,000 barrels in July and then 258,000 barrels per day in August and September, which is a total of 573,000 barrels, which would be the equivalent of what they've missed, um, for, uh, the month of May. So they're going to make up for that. Yeah. And and real quick, I'm just, so this has been going on for quite some time. This kind of back and forth. And they were talking with, the companies about cutting and whatnot. It is convenient that, that Iraq is willing to cut now that the prices are back up. <laughs> right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> when prices were, you know, 15 bucks or whatever they were, 20 bucks is like, Oh, we can't cut guys. It's $25. You know, we're going to figure this out now. 40 is like, okay, okay. Okay. We're going to, we're going to make up for that now. We're going to make up for yeah. that now. Just, we've, we've been able to figure out all these internal problems. And so uh, just, just convenient. I thought. Well, on the other on the other side, though, uh, the U.S. is expected. Uh, I got an article here, Oil and Gas 360. It's got a couple of different numbers that it throws out, uh, but one of them says that, that I think one of the more reliable numbers was they're expecting to add 400,000 barrels a day uh, by July to start coming on the market uh, with U.S. With oil up around 40, uh, they're they're expecting uh, 400,000 barrels a day to get added on from the u.s side so uh so they're they're seeing some increased activity i just wonder how that's going to play out because the opec cuts that you're seeing may end up being offset by the u.s uh what really needs to happen though is just oil consumption we need to get we need to get back to work people need to start traveling going places again and um you know the production will I'm just a little nervous. You know, talk about Beijing shutting down again. We, we yeah. you know, countries that are, are a little nervous about the coronavirus. I mean, 500,000 barrels a day shouldn't have that big of an impact. But if if demand stays low, it could, and that's just going to be what we have to wait and see. Wait and see what happens. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know if you followed much about um, 
the Trump rally this weekend, but you know, they were projecting, you know, all of these big, huge numbers. And then of course there's a big, big, big debate of the TikTok stuff and whatever. And just, just really quick, let me just say this. They, they said they had like a million tickets sold. They had maybe 10,000 people show up if you count inside and outside. You know, I don't know. Um, but with that being said, my, you know, the, you know, the, the, they're blaming tick, they're blaming the, the Trump campaign is, is blaming the media. It's like, well, maybe, but you're saying that you had a million because they said they weeded out the, the fake ones. You had a million, only 10,000 showed up. You're saying like 990,000 people were deterred by the media. That seems a little bit, seemed a little bit, you know, a little bit strong there. Um, do you think that maybe the Trump rally is a, any indication that we are not ready to have large scale venues or do you think it's more of a, uh, more of just a, an aberration of this weekend and kind of, you know, maybe, maybe Trump's, you know, without getting into the Trump candidacy thing, but just, is it more indicative of this, this weekend or a larger statement was said that, Hey, people are just not really ready to get out and go. Yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely think that there's some TikTok involved. I don't think 990,000 people didn't show up. Um, I, I did see, see some reports on that. Yeah, I thought that was a, just as an aside, I thought it was a bad move to say that because the, the campaign came out and said, well, we were aware of the fake tickets and we weeded we, we those out. It's like, well, so you're saying that you actually had more than a million people register <laughs> and you weeded out the TikToks. <laughs> okay, you still have 990,000 who didn't show because of the media. You know, and so I, th- I think, I think as an aside, I think the Trump campaign was expecting probably six figures. And then they were going to say, listen, we would have had the largest one in the history of mankind if, you know, if the media didn't scare them off. And instead they had like, you know, 7,000 in the building and 10,000 uh, all around or whatever. But, but yeah, I, I was kind of stunned that the numbers were that low. Um, I, I have a hard time imagining that, uh, a true reflection of Trump's um, current status in the political environment. I think it's just more that people are saying, Hey, unless we're fired up, mad, ready to go protest. We're not really ready to get out in large gatherings. And that's in that, but for demand and stuff, part of the demand comes from, you know, concerts and just the normal way of life. I mean, obviously concerts well, aren't a huge draw on demand, but you know what I'm saying? Well, we, let's give it a little bit of context here. Uh, the day before that rally was the Juneteenth, and the riots have been uh, less than peaceful in some locations. That's true. With the, with the, you know, all the monikering that's going on, and colonizes and racism, and all the all the crap. Um, I tell you right now, I would have been nervous because I thought I thought there was going to be some bat swinging going on. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. That's true. But still, you go from a million to ten thousand. That's the thing. It's such a yeah. large. So now the reality is that the Trump campaign could have been lying about um, just the million in general. And that, and that's the hard part. We don't know is how many people actually, you know, how many people actually were supposed to attend versus, you know, who showed up. That's, that's the, the interesting question. I just found that as an interesting thing going, okay. Hmm. Now the next, the next time Trump has a rally, I think that's really going to be, I don't know when his next one is scheduled for, but um, I think that's probably gonna be the next big thing I can think of if it's before football or whatever comes out uh, that we can sit and kind of measure what the state of people are, because if you're a Trump supporter now and you want to attend a rally and you saw how bad this one is, you're probably going to be more motivated to go to the next one. Right. Yeah. Uh, just, to just to show support. Right. Yeah. And so I think his next rally, if it's, I don't know what, again, I don't know what it is, but if it's, if it's sooner rather than later might be the next gauge of kind of where at least part of America is on, um, you know, getting out and, co-mingling at that at an indoor large event because without indoor regular large events, we're still not back to a sense of normalcy. And again, I'm not saying that NBA basketball games are a huge demand on um, all, but they are part of the equation. And the less of those things we have, it's just the softer the, the demand is generally. All right, Ryan, we had a uh, Houston Chronicle uh, article that came out. We've kind of already hit on a lot of it, uh, but the title of the article was Reporter's Notebook, Oil and Gas Facing Its Own Energy Apocalypse. Um, It's really in line with that first Forbes article that we talked about, and it sees that uh, the oil and gas industry is, he thinks, running into its, you know, it's in, it's in the last uh, last quarter of its life cycle before it it, it ends. So he's kind of you know, same sentiments uh, again. I think we've I think we've hit that pretty well. But uh, it's an interesting article if you want to take a look at it. It has a, a couple of nuances in it that are a little different than the Forbes article. Uh, for well, reference, and, and, and again, just so, so we're clear, 
there's a short term and the long term, right? The short term, I don't think we're trying to say at all that it might not be rocky. You might not see more layoffs. You might not see companies fold. The long term perspective is hard to see why people are so negative on it beyond uh, you know this year. Again, unless you just really don't think that these 4.2 billion people are going to ever emerge from um, object poverty when there's almost no reason to think that. So um, there was a, a article with OPEC talking about the impact of the virus on this year's demand. Um, so we've already we, we've talked about that kind of from our perspective in the U.S. Uh, but OPEC is also very worried about it. Um, they're they're looking at oil demand being uh, much lower for the next six months than than it was for the first three months of the year, and uh, and so they're. They see uh, they see a difficult path ahead. So it's interesting seeing some of the studies and and how how they're looking at it. Um, because usually the the reports we're getting are, are from you know Texas perspectives or, or even U.S. based kind of looking at demand because we use a lot uh, here and the numbers that that we're pulling. But OPEC kind of are pulling their own their own studies, doing their own studies, and it's it's looking for them. They're they're definitely. I'm concerned with the next few months. Right. Well, I mean, again, you know, the U S is the, you know, the number one consumer. So they need the U S to get up and going. That's part of it. And this is the thing is that when we shut down our economy and, and I don't want to pick on any particular country here, but this is not, um, you know, um, you know, the DRC shutting down their economy, right? The DRC shuts down their economy. And most people are like, well, wait, that's a country, you know, and I'm, Love the DRC, no, no ill will towards those people. It's just a practical reality. The U.S. shuts down this economy. What happens is you start seeing articles about how that impacts Africa, how that impacts Europe, how that impacts China. So, you know, these these large, you know, G20 type nations when they shut down, the ripple effect is is global. Um, and we saw that as the 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 coronavirus started to creep its way through. China, when China finally shut down, I say finally, when China actually shut down um, the, uh, you know, shut down Wuhan, and then when they shut down the whole country, what did we see? We started seeing the price of oil fall, right? Yeah. If the DRC shuts down their economy, the price of oil probably doesn't move at all, okay? Um, And so, you start looking at that going, okay, well, this is, hmm, this is interesting. This is how it's going to play out. And, And so, OPEC definitely needs the U.S., especially to get up, to get going, to keep demand high. Um, and then, you know, the sooner the U.S. is up and going, well, that's a large portion of demand that comes back. And then you would assume that um, eventually some of these larger nations will come back. Um, but the emerging markets just do not carry enough uh, demand, uh, enough weight to, to impact the demand right now. And so they will, but not today. And so, yeah, I think OPEC is concerned uh, every time that we talk about shutting things back down, and rightfully so, because we use so much of the oil, and they don't, and we don't know what the new, to use the term, the new normal is going to be. You know, until we just, you know, are we going back to basketball games where there's people in the stands, and baseball games, and football games, and concerts, and and all that stuff. And so, what are the new U.S. demand numbers? Um, we don't know, and um, and you know, and right now it feels like there is. Um, and I talked about this last week about the cases. So I went and looked this up, right? Um, about the cases and you know how many of those were coronavirus cases. So I went and looked up a few articles, and those articles were reporting the coronavirus cases and the hospitalizations. Okay, so I, I did go back and look that up. Um, but as you kind of look into the the COVID numbers a little bit more, there's a lot of reports of the numbers surging. Um, and I haven't looked the past few days uh, since probably Friday. So I don't know what's happened over the weekend. Um, but it's not entirely clear that the the hospitalizations are surging at the same rate as the cases are, which is an important distinction to make, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's an important distinction that has to be made, and it's not initially being made. And maybe the hospitalizations will catch up to the cases. I don't know, but right now it doesn't appear that that's the case. Did you see the report from Florida that came out where they said that? Uh, they have twice as much beds available than they did before the virus. It's yeah. because they got, they got more beds, obviously. So what I'm saying is, is that they're saying they have more than enough. They're, they're good. They also talked about just the death. I mean, the, 
infection rates being ICU and stuff's been, um, they're, they're not in any sort of pinch right now. There is no concern about overrunning the hospitals in Florida. So they're, they're, that's not the issue. Uh, and it, it, again, you go back to what they were saying originally, what was the point of some of the shutdowns? It was to try to flatten the curve. And what he's saying is it's, it's as flat as we're going to get it. I mean, we're, we're good. We got plenty of things now. We just got to get back to normal and we got to, uh, we got to deal with this thing. Um, but you know, we're not going to reduce the amount of people that are going to get it. Uh, we're all we can do is, is make sure that we're set to give you proper health care so that, you know, the death rate remains incredibly low, which, which it is. So, but yeah. It, yeah. So no, I, I watched, uh, I was the same one you watched. I watched a 45 minute press conference with, uh, Rick DeSantos, or however you say his name, and you know, the the video that I found was from uh, was from the Washington Post. And what was striking about this video was he talks about it, all the things about the numbers and all the stuff, and, and he talks about the average age for the test and how the the people that were initially testing were like forty some, I mean sixty something years old. Now they're like thirty eight, and thirty eight people uh, year old people don't really typically have to go to the hospital and all this stuff. So I watched the whole video. Here's what the description box read, Josh. I kid you not. I've got a link to my Twitter. You can go see it. Case numbers continue. This is okay. This is real quick. Florida Governor Rick DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantos, DeSantis, whatever, provides update on coronavirus. This is him and Florida health officials. The description reads for YouTube from the Washington Post. Case numbers continue to surge across the South and West, notably in Oklahoma, where President Trump plans to hold a campaign rally Saturday. Records were also reported in California, Arizona, and Florida on Thursday. Let me restate, this video was the Florida governor talking about Florida coronavirus. The lead for the Washington Post was the Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I looked it up. It's a 12-hour drive from Pensacola to Tulsa. I don't know how many folks from Pensacola were going to Tulsa or Tulsa to Pensacola. Probably not that many. Being that they only had 10,000 show up, can't be a whole lot. What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, yeah. I mean, seriously. So, I mean, let's. We got to get back to normal. If you, I understand people being scared because they are in, you know, the the, the target zone. They're, they're older people or whatever. But at this point, uh, go watch DeSanto's videos or go watch go watch our governor Abbott's. You know, Abbott did a video a week ago Monday. Yeah. He talked about the number of surges and how it worked. And he said, you know, um, I can't remember the counties, but essentially, you know, what to say Hood County? Just use a, a county, Hood County. Uh, it had, you know, 40 cases a day, whatever it was. And then three days in a row or two days in a row, whatever it was, they had zero, zero, zero. And then the third or fourth day, they sit in like 300 cases. And so the, the, it, it appears that they had a 300 case surge. Well, reality was they didn't have any cases for those previous days reported. So if you start to balance it out, then all of a sudden you get to the point to where you, the average is basically the same more or less. And it's like, oh, well, see, that's, 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 that's pretty interesting that you actually look at the numbers and Breaking down. So, anyways, the, the whole thing just just hacks me off. Yeah, I mean it's so dishonest. I mean people wonder why we don't why we don't why trust in the media is so low now. Uh, but it's it's terrible, man. It's just really bad. I mean the more more that people just completely shut off all of the media and actually start doing listen their own research. Yeah, listen, listen to, yeah, listen to us. All the time. Well, wait, you give us some income, you know, I, I mean, a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, we could probably do, <laughs> we could probably set up some news related media sources and give you the cold, hard facts. Oh, gracious. It'd probably, I'd probably have a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. If all the anger. Yeah. Okay. Today we have a special guest, Chris Meshack, director of Pickering Energy Partners. He's joining us on the show today. Chris, great to have you on the show, bud. How's things going? Yeah, great to be great to be here remotely. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, we wanted to get someone on to kind of break down the escape, uh, the landscape of the hedges, uh, especially as far as our U.S. Texas uh, Permian Basin type producers are going. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about EOG. They were selling all theirs off. I believe I saw someone from your organization was the first one to uh, that I saw report that. Um, so what can you maybe back up and kind of give us a 30,000 perspective of hedges in general, some of the, the types of hedges that are used and then, um, and then kind of go into what you guys have seen 
uh, over the last few months as the pandemic has hit and how people have either been making money or losing money or selling hedges or what they've been doing as, as a response. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, from a high level, the, the industry has, has never been great at hedging. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple schools of thought there. Yeah, obviously hedges are a great risk management tool, but by and large, I think most of executive offices and, and, um, in particular see this as, as something that's forced onto them as opposed to, um, something that management teams do willingly. And I'm speaking in broad generalities here. There's obviously exceptions to the rule, but typically, you know, you see companies, um, hedge because of, you know, a bank or, or someone else forcing them, uh, to do it as opposed to, um, companies using this as a, as a, as a risk management tool. Um, I think, you know, the, the industry has been under hedged historically. Um, and that looks something like you know, 50% of production is hedged in the first year, maybe half that in the second year, and then kind of three years plus out there's, there's very little hedging going on. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. You know, you can just sell, sell the futures, you can do costless callers, swaps, um, just depending on, on the company, you know, those, I think if you look at some of these, um, things like a, like a costless caller, um, that got oxy into a bit of, bit of trouble, uh, recently where, you know, basically the way the, the hedges were structured, I think it was kind of below $40. They were wearing all that risk. Um, and so sometimes hedges are actually just the illusion of hedges and they're not actually, um, <laughs> they're not, they're not actually a, a true hedge. Um, what I think you'll see going forward is, um, you'll see more and more hedging because it's going to be demanded by boards and investors. Um, the investor community is exhausted with the sector. Um, you know, returns have been, have been really bad, uh, over the last, and really over the, over the life of the industry, um, investors have not, have not made a lot of money. And I think there's this a little bit of an illusion that the oil and gas industry exists to make money. Um, the, the joke here is kind of like the oil and gas industry exists to make oil and gas. It, it, it's never really been about making money. Um, and there's, you know, this idea that well, why would you invest in my company unless you wanted access or, or, um, exposure to one, the drill bit and two, the commodity price. Um, I think investors are, are going to say now, well, <laughs> we've been burned by the commodity price over and over and over, especially in the last six, seven years, right? 2014, 2016, and again, this year. Um, and with a number of stacked risks, subsurface risk, geologic risk, financial risk, all these things, let's start to strip some of those risks out of the system. And, uh, and, and we can, um, continue to, to give you guys capital, you guys, the, the energy industry. Um, so that, those are kind of some, some high level thoughts. Um, and I'll pause there and see if, see if you guys have any reactions to that. No, that, that's good because we were talking earlier, kind of the, the twofold look at the oil and gas industry. So we are very, uh, I'm gonna say bullish long-term for oil and gas, mainly because there's 4.2 billion people. If you just take, China, India, Africa, South America, I think that's it, 4.2 billion people who will eventually become first world status. If you look at the last 100 years, what we've done for poverty alleviation, you kind of project it out further. Um, that's a lot of oil and gas has to be used. Now, how that, you know, actually is used, um, you know, what products and stuff, you know, that's for someone else to decide. But um, we're very, very optimistic about the long-term prospect of oil and gas and don't think it's going away like some might want to believe. However, that doesn't mean for the next six months or year that you might see oil and gas companies, you know, go bankrupt or, you know, shift away from this or that. And so kind of hearing your perspective on how the hedges might be um, used is, is, is a helpful thing because that might be um, a way in which companies who, um, you know, have been a little bit more risky in the past, <laughs> you know, um, you know, try to settle in because one of the things we said that you probably are going to see companies try to settle in, try to, you know, um, you know, 
lower their costs wherever they can. And, and when we talk about lowering costs, if you read kind of a Bloomberg article about lowering costs, you know, they focus on one thing. And of course, those are big cost items, but there's a lot of ways that these oil and gas companies can lower costs, um, whether that's, you know, through uh, uh, you know, vendor prices or streamlining efficiencies or new technology or yada, yada, yada. Um, so hearing that the, the hedges uh, could be incentivized is, is interesting. But that makes me think of during the last downturn, uh, I'd say last downturn because we're in one right now, but back in uh, 2015, 2014, um, when Harold Hamm sold off his hedges at $60, right before the price just collapsed, um, it was kind of made him a laughing stock in my opinion. Uh, I know he's revered by a lot, but, but that felt all silly. Will the banks and the, CEO, uh, the investor groups kind of prevent those types of uh, abilities from the, the CEOs to, you know, to kind of sell them off as they see fit? How, how do they prevent that? Because that still might be part of the risk is that, that you have a Harold Ham type who says, you know, you know what, we're expecting a quick rebound. We're going to go ahead and uh, sell these things now. Yeah, no, I mean, that's certainly, that's certainly the risk. Um, and I, you know, we've been doing a lot of work on kind of cor- correlated in, in some ways on the, on the ESG trend in oil and gas, what this all means. And it basically the, the takeaway is like, if you don't have to answer to anybody and you don't have, um, and you don't have to ask anyone else to, for money, then you can do whatever you want. Right. But if you're going to have to use someone else's money, um, or you have outside stakeholders that you have to answer to, these will be forced onto you. Um, you know, banks are, the banks are going to get smoked on, on this, on this downturn, right? They had all these covenant light agreements that didn't have a lot of teeth. I think you'll see those agreements for, you know, for reserve based loans or, or whatever other kind of credit facilities they put in place. Those will have much more teeth in the form of, Hey, you have to have hedges. If you don't have them, there's going to be consequences. Um, and you better comply with these. Otherwise, you know, yeah, maybe you can get away with this once, but then you're never going to get money again. <clears throat> um, the the challenge here is that uh, human nature is really hard to overcome. Right. Uh, and and we, we we sent out a survey recently, and when we sent out the survey, oil was at twelve bucks, and we said, oh. where do you think? And we sent out to three thousand people. We got like three hundred and fifty responses, oh. and one of the questions was, where do you think oil will end twenty twenty? Um, there was one guess that was above 35 bucks. Uh, the rest of them were all in the 10 to $20 range. Um, which I think just goes to show that as, as humans, we have a really, really hard time looking beyond kind of status quo. What, where we are today is sort of where we expect things to persist in the future. Um, and, you, know, you see this time and time again on the hedging side with, wow, you know, what was it? 2017, we got up to high sixties, low seventies. Uh, and everybody's like, Oh, well, we're going back to a hundred and you didn't see anybody hedging by, I mean, right. by and large, um, you know, same thing when oil prices were collapsing, oil was at 26 bucks and, and centennial resource development hedge dollar production at $26. Um, mm-hmm. and so there's a really hard, it's really hard for us, to, to make these decisions, especially in volatile markets, you know, prices are going up. Ah, well, I'm always like an idiot in front of my board. If I hedge at 75 and we go to 110 and same thing, like, Oh man, we're at 26. If it goes to 10 bucks, I better hedge now. Um, and, and we're just really bad prognosticators of price. And, um, and I think you'll see for better or worse financial, the financial community have more control over these decisions and they'll be pre-wired, right? It's if oil goes to 50, we have a system in place that automatically hedges X percent of production. um, And there'll be kind of systemic rules in place. And it'll be to, I think ultimately it'll help, you know, smooth out some of the, the industry volatility, mm. right? So if you have your prices, you know, your prices locked in for three years, you've galvanized economics and you can just go about your development plan, regardless of what the actual price is. Um, so that, you know, that's beneficial for your frat crews and the rigs and your service providers and all these 
Um, can, I hedge to, can I hedge my prices yep. for three years with them as well? <laughs> my service <laughs> costs, will they hedge that with me? <laughs> you know, I, actually, we, we've seen some of that. There's, um, there's a, a fund um, called Orion that, that does something kind of like that. Uh, uh, they, they will hedge at the portfolio level, which is kind of a clever way to do it. The, the idea being... I've invested or I've lent money to an oil field service company. They obviously have production and they can't, this is not a true hedge quote unquote in that way. But you know, I know that if oil goes to 20 bucks, my services company is out of business. So I'm going to put a hedge on that, uh, that will pay me back 70 cents on the dollar. If oil goes to $20, because I'm probably going to lose my principal in this investment. Hmm. which is kind of a, a, a clever way um, to okay. to protect protect the the investor risk, um, and I think there's the other side of the coin here too is that um, if prices go up, I've always thought about it that you're with a, if you're if you have a real hedge and prices go up, you're hedged both ways. So prices right. go down, great, it has worked. Prices go up you probably have some more drilling locations that became economic. That's true. But you can go ahead and drill and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, hedge those and galvanize those. Um, so let, me, let me ask you this real quick. Um, one of the things we talked about pre COVID was we, we, you know, we felt like you might see a shift of these EMP companies who are struggling to make money um, that they might shift to diversifying a little bit more into getting to the midstream business um, to kind of, uh, bring in new ways of revenue and to, you know, offset costs, stuff like that. Do you think that that might tie into some of these things that you're seeing? Um, Cause if they are hedging their oil and, uh, or they're more likely to, then they kind of have set prices or if they're going to hedge it and say, no, there's no need to actually have our own midstream division. Cause we kind of know what our, what our margins are, are going to be. I think you'll definitely see, see consolidation. Um, the integration is, you know, <laughs> this is cyclical business and, we went through a big consolidation cycle, eighties, nineties, and then, you know, in this, the boom of the private equity age, it's not even, not even consolidating the upstream, right? It's like you have your Permian team or you just have your Midland basin team and then your Delaware basin team and your scoop stack team. So I think, um, uh, the biggest cost cutting action that we're going to see in the near term is that, okay, maybe you don't need uh, your private equity fund. You don't need, 10 teams in the Permian, maybe you only need one or two. You can cut a whole bunch of very expensive corporate overhead. Um, and then, you know, if you can get all the way downstream, that is, a, that is your hedge, right? If Exxon Mobil um, is losing money on the upstream, well, they're still making it on the refinery um, and vice versa. Now, those are obviously much different businesses. Um, and that I think again, will be driven by, by the investor community. Um, it's it's really tough to get investors to give you money to invest in oil and gas upstream oil and gas right now i think it's kind of to be seen whether they would be more or less receptive to hey here's a um here's a a fully integrated system um you know bigger energy partners we're we're private equity investors we like that we made an investment in a in a Hainesville producer that they own, you know, they're, they're an upstream producer. They own their own sand mine. They own water system. They own their midstream system. And so not only can they really control their costs, um, but they have the ability to, you know, sell excess capacity to third parties and actually turn, turn these systems into, into profit centers as well. Um, but those are going to be much different skill sets um, than Kind of by and large, you're seeing in in West Texas, right? You have your midstream team that manages, operates midstream infrastructure, and a totally separate company that does that does the upstream. Um, but I think you'll you'll certainly see a lot of consolidation, uh, kind of driven first by cost cutting, and and two in 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 that same vein, the the sort of ability to turn those into into profit centers and control your control your risk up and down the system. Okay. So let's talk about EOG. That's again, I think what kind of caught our attention was um, Dan had released that EOG had sold off, I think all their hedges 
uh, for the rest of the year. For me. If I remember correctly, it's like, hmm, okay, you know, G's a very historically well-run company. Um, this was, I want to say, a few weeks ago when we saw this. So prices may have still been the 20s. I can't remember. But you go, okay, well, that's an interesting move. And I think either him or someone else was comparing it to the Harold Ham incident I, I, I referenced. And I thought, well, it's not the same from my perspective because Ham sold while it was literally going down. Um, it could go back down here for EOG, but we're closer to the, we're definitely not closer to the bottom than we are um, where Ham was. Um, but it doesn't mean that they might just take a bath in this thing. So what are y'all's thoughts on the EOG um, you know, unloading their hedges? Is this a, you know, for our listeners who, you know, a lot of folks work in the oil and gas industry, is this a, a good sign that maybe EOG sees something that we don't see and uh, the prices are going to be back and we're all going to be working here in a few months? Or you kind of look at it and go, no, they've, they may have over, um, overshot their skis here. Yeah, I'm I'm of the opinion here, and I don't have any any you know great insight into into EOG and, and why they why they did that. It I think it was there was a lot <laughs> um, a lot going on um, at the time. People had made some good and bad decisions. You know, unloading a bunch of hedges when prices are really low is might prove to be a, a great decision. Um, their hedges, and I, I don't have a uh, I haven't looked at how exactly they they were hedged uh, but those hedges were probably pretty valuable um when they when they sold them on the expectation that prices would rebound um the, the flip side there is if you go back and you look at uh uh real oil price in real dollars so you you, you inflation adjusts the entire historical price of oil for the past 120, 150 years has been about $35. That's, that is the average price of oil for the entire history of the industry, um, which is right around, you know, where we are today. Um, and so what I, I think you're going to see, I guess we're at 40 bucks now, um, but sort of in that range. Uh, and especially when you go to a supply driven bear market, you really see prices sort of hover around that kind of marginal cost. And and my personal belief here is that we're in another, another deflationary cycle for, for the sector um, where prices, oil prices don't have to go up, but services costs will continue to fall. Um, Every you know, every penny is going to get squeezed out of the system. Service providers are going to continue to get pushed to, to lower their prices. And, and, you know, the story is the same as it's always been in these bear markets is, well, you can have that rig running at this cost or you can lay it down. Um, and your guys who are making, you know, 150 grand a year are going to make 120, but at least they have a job or a hundred grand or whatever the numbers are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think you'll see costs continue to get to get squeezed um, as the way to live within cash flows, um, as opposed to hoping oil prices go back up as the as the thing that that brings the industry back. But I, I think this I don't think we'll ever at least not in this cycle see the same level of activity return. Uh, the sh- you know shale production is really really responsive. Um, and so you can, um, let's just send this over to you guys. You put on the screen, but the a chart where, that shows you, know, you have a rig and let's say that rig can drill one well a month. You have that rig out there for a year, reaches some level of production, take that rig away for a year and you don't drill any more wells. You've got this huge decline curve, bring that rig back. You can be back at the same level of production in six months, despite a year of no activity. And then you only need to drill one well every four months to maintain a flat level of production. And so you can actually go down after you've gone through this big growth phase, you can go down to about 25% of the activity that you had in the growth phase to maintain a flat production. So you can really, really hunker down, drastically reduce your activity and maintain flat production, which is what the market is telling us right now at 40 bucks. We don't need any growth. We need we need strong balance sheets. The investors are demanding returns and dividends and money back, um, and and I think part of that is going to be is is going to be the hedging story in addition to 
the services costs. And and specifically on EOG, you know, those guys have, are very, very smart. They they run a great company. They look like they're in pretty good shape. Um, and they have a very, very high quality asset base. But I don't I don't have any great insights as to well, no, why that, they they unwound. Yeah, but that's interesting on the um, on the uh, decline curve because we talked about that. You know, we said that you know, one of the things that the shell industry has been widely criticized for is how fast the decline curves are. It's like, well, at some point that actually has to catch up to to the production or, you know, at some point it's, the production has to go down, right? And so it's like, okay, well, if you can maintain 25% uh, kind of with the way you spelled it out there, that's, that's interesting uh, that it doesn't take nearly as much as maybe six to eight months ago, the, 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 um, the, the articles were being written about, you know, how dependent on shell was going to be on new production to keep things going. But based upon how you kind of laid it out there, it's, it's um, far less than, than I would have thought for sure. Yeah. It's, it's cause it, it's, it's really counterintuitive. Um, and until I, until I, I did the math myself, I, I wouldn't have believed it either. Um, but what happens is that, you know, the first two, three years, you have really, really high decline curves, but relatively quickly you build this big chunk of wells that are only declining, you know, eight, 10% a year. And you get so much production because the IP rates are so high off of new shale wells that you actually don't need very much activity. Um, once you've kind of overcome that, like if you only drilled two wells, then you're going to have to keep drilling. But if you're an EOG size producer with, you know, thousands of wells, then you actually have a pretty big base of low declining wells and you don't need very much because you get so much new production in the first two years of each of each new shale well um, that you can actually hold it flat, um, you know, 70, 80% less, uh, with 70 or 80% less, less activity than you had. Well, you mentioned a chart. If you email it over to Nate or whatever, we'll put that in the show notes or somewhere so the listeners can take a look at that. If you have a, a graphic we can share, and that'd be great. Um, and then after we get off here, where can folks follow more about you or company or where do you want to send them to if they have uh, questions or just want to follow you guys' work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our, our website is pickeringenergypartners.com. Uh, I would also highly recommend following Dan Pickering on Twitter. Uh, he's he's great. Um good insights and, and he's pretty funny. Um, he's at Pickering energy on Twitter. Um, and if you go to the website, you can sign up for, for our email blast and all, all that sort of stuff. Um, that's, that's the best place to do it. And, and if you have questions, feel free to, to email me. Um, I'll send you guys my email. It's just see me shack at Pickering energy partners.com. Uh, and, and happy to, uh, to keep the conversation going. Yeah, we'll include all that in there. And then, Josh, it should be noted that unlike the show producers, we have regularly produced a podcast every week. Well, most weeks we, we, we've missed. But so we've been we've been consistent in our production. Our decline rate is pretty steep. It's not very good after you get to the first few minutes, but we are consistent, if nothing else. Um, and so if those banks want to shift their money into a less making money venture like a podcast, we would be happy to um, wine and dine them as well. So um, just feel free to pass it on to your banking buddies. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, it was, it was uh, good to get, get, get someone smart to kind of break all this down for us. We appreciate it. Happy to help. Um, enjoyed it. And uh, apologies for being late again. Oh, no problem. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, thanks again for Chris Meshack, Director of Procuring Energy Partners, coming on the show today. Ryan, I think it's time to jump into the Texas Roundup. We have a couple of, couple of things we want to note here before we sign off. Uh, one, shell producer Devon Energy curtails 10,000 barrels per day of oil production. Uh, BP writes off billions as COVID redraws rules of oil demand. Uh, this is MRT article if you want to check it out. Dow sets carbon neutral goal for 2050. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means anymore. They're going to be <laughs> carbon neutral. It means that they're going to. They're going to buy like uh, some. They're going to invest a certain amount of money that that basically offsets their use of carbon. Yeah. I, well, they also might do some kind of carbon capture stuff that they're going to take it and you know recycle it or something like that. But that's what I'm saying. saying. That's what yeah, I'm saying. When I say I don't know what it means, that's why there's so many different ways that it can yeah, go. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's, it's, they're not saying they're going to quit producing carbon. That yeah, yes. yeah, because they. I read something once where uh, somebody used a whole bunch of carbon, but they invested X amount of money into green. And so mm. it gave them negative carbon. 
So they were able to get to neutral, right? We are a carbon uh, neutral podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And we will take all investments and we'll give you, you know, it'll reduce. We are are pro green, pro black hole, uh, black gold. We are pro, um, pro carbon neutral, pro Paris climate accord, anti Paris climate accord. We're, we're flow. We're pro money in our bank account. We are for hire and we will spend it however you say. Yeah. We have standards. We have double standards. (laughs) Well, listen, when we're not getting paid, we're going to tell you like it is. Okay? But when you bring us on the payroll, let me tell you something. We'll spend it however you want us to, baby. We'll, we will yeah. spend it however you want us to. We're just like your typical Republican and Democrat. That's <laughs> exactly right. Pass a little bit of money. We'll tell you what you want. Pass a little, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We'll tell you what we think, what you want us to say. Uh, and then let's say last article is a uh, Journal of Petroleum uh, Technology article. Um, it's got a lot of information in it. It's Cornish continues to con- curtail oil field services sector. Uh, a lot, a lot of information here. You know, it has some graphs here about pre-COVID nineteen jobs, post-COVID nineteen jobs. Uh, that's produced by Rystead Energy. Uh, just a lot of good information overall. We'll link to that in the show notes. You want to go check it out. Um, it's a, a really good article. Yep. And as we said, you know, uh, we're hearing more optimism, but that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. And I think that kind of listening to what he was saying and what we're seeing from the headlines is we still got a, still got a ways to go. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll turn the corner on this thing and kind of get back to the quote unquote new normal or the old normal would be fine with me. Um, you know, get back to that and uh, sooner rather than later. But until then, Josh, we'll continue to produce wasteful hours of podcast um, to keep the people masses happy. And with that, until next time, keep climbing.